Thank you, Shelby and Olivia. Thank you, Noah, for leading us in worship. I also appreciate the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit that is in this place this morning as a result of your obedience and leadership. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 9 this morning, but before we turn there, I just want to thank this body uh, for their outpouring of love for Iris and Jean Clark. Um, You did an exceptional job, and I heard lots of comments um, in how well people were served and the outpouring of love that went forth from this church. And people even commented on the youth that serve so well here. So thank you for your hard work. People are always watching, and it was a powerful witness to the glory of God. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 34. And as you know, um, Matthew's style, each gospel writer has their own writing style, their own way of putting things. And for whatever reason, Matthew in this section describes miracles of Jesus. So he'll describe three miracles of Jesus and then give a teaching about discipleship. Three miracles and then a teaching of discipleship and so forth. This morning, we will look at the last of the three miracles, not in Scripture, but in this section from Matthew. But before we dive into that, just to set the context of where we're headed this morning, I want to read just a few scriptures out of the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah. So you're, if, you, if you picture yourself, you're in the Old Testament, you're the people of God, and you either hear Isaiah say this or you read these scrolls, and you know that this has to do with you because you are the people of God. Your God spoke these words. And in chapter 35, and I'm just kind of hit or miss here in the verses 3 through 10, I've edited them. But he says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. So this is spoken from their God about a day that will come when those that are thirsty and even the land that is just dried up in a blaze will flow with living water or with thirst-quenching water. So just kind of tuck that in the back of your heads and let's look at our passage this morning that has to do with the authority that Jesus has. We've already seen that Jesus has authority over the natural. We've already seen that Jesus has authority over the supernatural. We've seen in the previous miracles that Jesus has authority over sin and he can forgive sin. This morning, we're going to look at a few more areas that Jesus has authority over. So let's look at verses 18 through 26. Take it a section at a time. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman had suffered from who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. 
For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Ruler comes before him. And Mark and Luke tell us the name. This ruler's name is Jairus. He's a ruler of a synagogue. He's a, Jew, a Jewish ruler. Synagogues were the place where the people of God gathered. Very much or similar to a church where the people of God gather today. It is there that they praise the Lord. It was there that they prayed to God. It was there that they read God's word. It was there that God's word was expounded. So the people were fed very much. The synagogues were the meat and potatoes, potatoes of spiritual growth, just like today's church is the meat and potatoes of spiritual growth. It's where we praise, pray. It's where we give testimony. All these things have already happened this morning and will continue to happen this morning. And now we sit at the feet of Christ because all have surrendered as the girls uh, played, or at least I hope that we have surrendered and surrendered all to Christ. So this is the meat and potatoes of spiritual growth. In the Old Testament, of course, they went to the temple. That was seasonal. That was an occasional for special purposes. But for the most part, the way they grew in God and got to know God was by their local community and the gatherings. And Jairus was a ruler over that. So he had ministry responsibilities. He would be the one to decide what portion of God's word would be read. And perhaps if a guest showed up, would he be given an opportunity to speak and give a message? Jesus was given opportunities in the synagogue to speak sometimes or to read scripture as was as well as the Apostle Paul longed that he longed for the time where he would be called on. Do you have a word for us, brother? And Paul had a word for the people in the synagogues. The Gospels. So he had ministerial responsibilities, you might even say somewhat of a pastoral uh, role. And as you know. From the Gospels and Kevin reminded us this morning that some people that called themselves the people of God and even read God's word had a cold heart towards Jesus and they were his enemy, but not Jairus. He was a ruler. He understood God's word. He warmed up to Jesus. He he earnestly sought Jesus. He was dependent upon Jesus. We see that he has faith. When he comes before him and and puts himself in that posture of humility, he kneels before Jesus. He doesn't just run up to him face to face and ask for this request, make this request, but he kneels before him. He's humble. He is submissive to Christ. And he's got something in his heart. He's got a request and the way he presents it is humbly. It's a position of uh, inferiority, it's kneeling, it's something that I wish we could do here every Sunday, honestly. I wish that our, our, our facility would make way for us to just be able to kneel before the Lord. Of course, we can come up here and kneel during a worship time. 
But as a child in the high church, the Catholic church, one of the things we did every service was kneel. And back then I hated it because I didn't know Christ. And it was just, man, I got to get out of my comfortable seat and wake myself up from my nap because everybody else is kneeling. I guess I don't want to be in the only head standing up. I I guess I better kneel. But kneeling is good before the Lord. And it, it reminds us that we're just his creation and he's the God over all. He's over me, so I come. And so that's the attitude here. Just what a great start that this man with ministerial responsibilities comes before him. We also see Jairus's faith in his statement that he knows what Christ is capable of. He knows that he has the power to heal his daughter. So there's the faith in his posture and the faith in his presentation. What he has to say is proclamation there. So he's been dependent upon the Lord for his ministerial duties. But now he doesn't come as a pastor. He comes to the Lord as a father. Because his daughter is sick. And he needs the power that Christ has in order for him to continue carrying out his paternal responsibilities. In order for him to continue to be this daughter's father while she's alive, he is dependent on Christ. Luke tells us that she is 12 years old. So she's as old as long as this woman, this little uh, this little um excursus in within this drama of the miracle has been bleeding. The woman with the issue of blood, she'd been bleeding for 12 years. Jairus's daughter has been living for 12 years. So you can imagine if you're a father, you can imagine the burden in his heart. You can imagine how serious of an issue this this is real life drama. And his daughter's dying, daughter of 12 years. So he's known her, he's he's loved her, he's embraced her for that long. He got to see her be born, come into the world. Got to see her grow hair and grow teeth. He got to walk her around and put her to sleep and try to keep her from crying. He got to watch her face lighten up with smiles. He bounced her on his knee. He ran there and protected her when she was hurt. Maybe if somebody tried to bully her or pick on her, he's dad. And he's got her tucked in here. And now her life is in danger. He's desperate. And apparently he has heard Jesus speak and he's either witnessed some miracles of his own or maybe he just heard the townspeople saying he did this and he did this. And he comes to Christ and he has every reason to believe based on what he's heard that he can heal his daughter. He's got the power. He's got the authority. And so he makes his request. And so we're just sucked right into the drama. Right here, Matthew has me on the edge of my seat. And then what does he do? He breaks rank, breaks my concentration. Then he starts talking about another miracle that happened while Jesus was on the way to perform a miracle. And this is the woman with an issue of blood. And we've talked about this a little bit before. 
wholly, uh, entirely different approach to Jesus. She didn't come on her knees. She didn't come screaming and crying out like the blind men will do shortly that we'll read about. She actually thought in her mind how she wanted her miracle to look. Matthew just informs us this is what she was thinking. She didn't want to be in the spotlight. She didn't want any fanfare. She didn't want people to even know how desperate she was. Now, maybe it was an embarrassing ailment, uh, the issue of blood. Maybe she just didn't want people to know her business. I don't know. Or maybe she just was um, a, a very shy person that didn't really care to be known for her faith. She just wanted to live it out quietly. Reservedly. But it's in there. She's got the same amount of faith. She knows and she reasons to herself. If I can just get close enough to touch him. That's it. That's what she's thinking. It's a, it's a sneaky mission. It's a, it's a in the shadows mission. Let me just go up here. Get healed and then I'll go out. Nobody needs to know this. There's a deep faith though. Didn't even plan to ask him anything. Based on her faith in Jesus' power and authority. And so she does that. That's what she wants to do. She sneaks up or makes her way or pushes her way in there. And Jesus says in verse 22, he turns and seeing her because she touched him. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Take heart. Be of good cheer. That was our first sermon for 2018. Remember, be of good cheer. What does it mean to take heart? It means to be courageous. It, it basically means stop looking at your life and your circumstances and all the things you can't do that are overwhelming you and turn your eyes on Christ and look at what God can do because that's what will cure your anxious heart. We get anxious because we look at things we're not in control of or are happening to us. And we get we just sink lower and lower in that anxiety and tension when all along what we need to be doing is it's not about what we can't do. It's about what God can do. And that will cure an anxious heart that happened to me this week. I confess to you. So the last two weeks, I've enjoyed actually being a part of the congregation and being edified from God's word and testimonies instead of having to be up here. But what that meant is. Um, I am very dependent on God for my sermons every week. I have to press in. I didn't do that for one of the two weeks. The first week I did an extra sermon, but the second week. So I'm like just relaxed spiritually now and I'm not as dependent on God. And then Gene Clark dies and then I have to prepare a, a message. And guess what? My first response was Ugh! anxiety, tension. How am I going to do this? What am I going to say? And it just brought me down. And I was miserable that quick from not having depend, to depend on God. Now, what brought me out of that? Having what? I realized I was dependent on God. And then a verse that I came armed with to minister to the Clark family, Isaiah 41. 10, so, so fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the verse that came to my mind. It's like, oh, yeah, you're with me. It's not about me. 
It's not about me. It never was about me. It, it doesn't even matter if I woke up there all anxious and tied in nuts. It's about God. He helps. He strengthens. That's take heart. Be of good courage. And so you can imagine how weak a heart would be after 12 years of dealing with. Now, an issue of blood means that she is ceremonially unclean. I mean, technically, according to the law. She can't go to the temple and, and, and participate in the temple worshiping. And I don't know what effect that had on her socially when you're technically unclean. It may have affected her social life. She's, she's downtrodden. She's desperate. Perhaps a weak heart because he says, be of good cheer. Have a strong heart. He gave her just what she needed. She wanted to. She wanted to sneak in and sneak back out. You ever wanted to do that? Sneak in, have an encounter with God or whatever, and then sneak back out so nobody knows about it. But she got caught. So Luke tells us that Jesus, um, when she touched him, he felt the power going out of him. And that's why Jesus came. He, he took on her infirmity and gave her his power. And the mission of this king that has come is to reverse the order of the curse. To revive things, to bring life to things. He has come sacrificially to serve people. He's come to, to take your sickness and your infirmity and your sin, your vile, filthy sin. He takes it on himself and gives you what in exchange? Life, nourishment, health, joy, wholeness. That's the mission of the king. That's the that's the role, that's the duty, that's the call he answered to. And that's what he's doing. And that's what he did there. And that's what he's doing today in our very midst. Reversing the effects of sin and death and the curse. So even low-key faith, even sneak-in and sneak-out faith, even backdoor faith is faith. And this passage certainly teaches us that Jesus... Knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're about. He knows who's seeking him and who isn't. He knows what ailments and what burdens we carry in here. And maybe didn't even say a word to anybody. Because we're just low key or maybe we're ashamed or embarrassed. Whatever it is. He knows about all of that. And he came to heal it. He came to, to, to put himself on it. To throw himself on it. Even this one woman out of a crowd was not overlooked. You think God knows what's on our mind right now? You think God knows what we brought into this place this morning? What kind of cares? What kind of worries? What kind of anxieties? What are we anticipating good or bad to happen? What are we facing in life? The Lord knows about it. He knows if you're interested to be here. He knows if you came here because mom and dad made you or your spouse made you. Or because you're really seeking Christ. He knows if you're here because if you're thinking Christ is the way. Or he knows if you're sitting there thinking Christ is in my way. I trust that you will reach out to him. 
this morning with an earnest heart to just touch him, to be in his presence, because you know, the closer you can get and press in, good things will happen. So you had that little diversion, and then you get back right into the drama. Matthew gets us right back into the drama of poor Jairus, who just asked Jesus to help him because his daughter is literally on her Sick bed. And by the way, uh, Mark and Luke tell us that she's not quite dead. I don't know exactly why Matthew says she's dead. Probably because by the time Jesus got there, she was dead. And he's just describing it from that view. But Mark and Luke tell us that she was deathly sick. She was about to breathe her last when Jairus came. Maybe she was dead before Jesus, Jairus even got to, to Jesus. But anyway, she was alive when Jairus left her. So this is urgent to him. He's got to get to this healer so he can get back there in time to save his daughter. And Jesus comes back and before he even gets there, he hears the sound of music. But it's not happy festival music. It's a dirge. It's funeral music because she has already died. And that culture knows how to grieve well. That culture weeps and cries and mourns over death. And they had already entered into that phase because this 12-year-old girl was dead. They're passing out the Kleenexes. They're hugging each other. They're comforting each other. They are in the full makings of a funeral service. There's a lot of commotion there, it says. A lot of commotion. Why? Because when there's emotion of losing a child, there's a lot of commotion. Yeah. It's interesting to me that according to Matthew or I'm sorry, Mark and Luke, this urgency It almost makes me wonder why, I mean, I know it happened, but the woman with the issue of blood, Matthew included it. So we're in the middle of this urgent drama where a father has just pleaded with Jesus to come and heal his daughter before she dies, really. And he stops and has this encounter with the woman with the issue of blood, knowing how desperate the situation is. In other words, every second counts. Death is in the balance. Every second counts. And he stops a few seconds. Because he knows what's going to transpire when he gets there. And he knows what he wants to do. He knows how he's going to display. He knows what kind of miracle will take place. And it wasn't just, I'm going to nurture you back to health miracle. If he had not awaited, she would not have died and therefore he would not have displayed his glory and his power and his authority over not just sickness, but death. Maybe he didn't show up when Jairus wanted him to, but he showed up when he wanted to. To get the glory that he desired to get out of the situation. Have you ever been in a situation and you're telling God every second counts? And you've got it all worked out and you can see where, how, 
how God can get the glory if he shows up and he does this right about now. And yet God might have, yeah, he's all about glory, but not in that way. He has something different in mind. So in this way, he gets the glory because he goes in there. And he and he calls her back to life rather than just healing her. And I know that it's tempting sometimes to think for God and think to myself. So personal example, as you know, we had a I had a son that uh, died. He would be um, 19 now, never made it out of the hospital, Joel. So we get the news that my wife is pregnant, Lisa's pregnant. We get the news through the ultrasound that he has congenital defects that are incompatible with life. And the more we look into it, it's a list as long as my arm of defects. Almost everything that could go wrong with a human being, he was going to suffer with, he suffered with. And so I thought immediately as a father that's desperate, I thought, oh God, you can get the glory. Because I can take this list that all the medical professionals have shown is wrong with him. And I can take this list and I can say, you see this list? It's incompatible with life. But do you see my son? He lives. It's the power of God to the glory of God. God, just think about it. And as his dad, I'll just, I'll, I'll never be quiet about it. I'll just keep speaking about the glory of God and how you healed my son. Lord, it's a golden opportunity for you to shine. I had it all worked out. He prayed and prayed and prayed as well as you. Many of you. God had a different plan. See, God gets glory in death too. God gets glory in tragedy. God gets glory when there's not a healing. And I don't know, maybe God decided, well, I'm going to glory myself, glorify myself in a big and mighty way, but not in that. Because there's other people in this broken world that need to see. That I am just as close and just as powerful and just as loving and just as compassionate when I don't heal. But when I take a life as when I give it, I'm the same God. And people need to know that because there's going to be other dads that lose their their children. There's going to be other grieving mothers. And kids, siblings. And the world needs to know the kind of God I am just not in the. In the feel-good miracle where everything works out in, in the rosy ending kind of God. I'm the God that gets down there. And I cry with you. And I mourn with you. And I hurt with you. And that brings God glory. And so, things may not have worked out as we thought they should have worked out. But God gets the glory. Jesus arises. He arrives at this place and basically says to the people and their instruments and they're crying and they're slobbering all over the place. Please make way. She's not dead. She just sleeps. And what do they do? They laugh at him. They laugh at him. 
Why do they laugh at him? Is it mean? No. They laugh at him because they know that she's not sleeping. She was resting before she died. They prayed that she wouldn't die. But now they know the difference between living and dead. And this 12 year old girl is not sleeping. She is officially dead. She'd been dead. So, yeah, the time is to mourn. Jesus calls it sleep. We call it death and it is death, but sleep. Sleep for Jesus because he knows what he's going to do for Jesus, who who has the power to raise people up. Death is just like sleep. It's just a matter of time before you wake up. Now, there is some of you sleep so soundly that you look dead. You know, you move the arm and it's just a slobber. Sometimes there's people in here while I'm preaching. They don't even know it because they're asleep. But I asked their neighbor, check his pulse, check their pulse. Just to make sure. There is a sleep, a sound sleep. This was not it. This was death. And Jesus does something extraordinary. His death is temporary. It's temporary. That's all it is. If you are a child of God, death is temporary. Actually, it's temporary for every human being because some will live forever in heaven and some will live forever in eternal damnation. But either way, you keep on going. It's just a time of sleeping. But he goes in there, this compassionate, this compassionate Lord into this house where there's so much grief. Have you ever been in a house like that? It's just oh, it's a heaviness. When there's loss of a child. And he just goes right in there and he takes her hand and compassion. Just just takes her hand and the the air, the power and the authority of God, the air comes back in. And the blood that had stopped and the heart that had given up just goes right back into acting. That muscle comes to life and and, and, and the color comes back and her eyes open. And she's alive. That's what Jesus does. He has that kind of power. And now, I don't know, doesn't tell us, but I think the fruit, flute player changed his tune. And I think the Kleenexes got put away for next time. Because of the power of. Of Christ, Jesus has authority over death. Jesus can reverse this thing that we're all facing and waiting for. Really? Death. He reverses it. He's incredible. He's awesome. He's reviving. And he's reversing the curse because the king is here. He may do it. In big and bold ways like this, he may do it every day in subtle ways. But if the Holy Spirit lives in you, Christ is reviving you. He is preparing you to live forever in the presence of God, not dimly, but where you will see him face to face. And we need to be prepared for that. And so in our lives, this darkness and this death and this sin, it's Christ is 
is conquering it around us and in us. And yes, he's letting the things die that need to die. And he's bringing to life the things that need to come to life. G.B. Uh, G. Hardy was a Canadian scientist. He said this one time. When I looked at religion, I said, I got two questions. Question number one, has anybody ever conquered death? And question two, if they did, did they wait, make a way for me to conquer it? He said, I checked the tomb of Buddha and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius, it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad and it was occupied. And they came to the tomb of Jesus and it was what? It's empty. And there's one who conquered death. So I answered the second question. Did he make a way for me to do it? And then I opened the Bible and began to read. Because I live. Even though you die. You shall live also. To live as Christ. To die. Is gain. The God that we are here to worship this morning. The Jesus that we are here to exalt has authority over death. Now, I almost reverse these orders like I have done in the past, because whatever reason, Matthew gives the sensational first and then the not so sensational. So there's a sensational. Now I have to compare to that. The rest of the miracles are not so sensational, but I decided not to reverse the order because Matthew didn't. So let's look at Jesus authority over disability. Not only is death not permanent, but disability is not permanent. Verse 27, Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Good job, guys. Blind and deaf Helen Keller said this. The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. And yeah, we have the senses and God gave us the senses and, and, and empirical things and that we can experiment with and so forth. But there is... Just as real, this, this world, this life, this being, God, he's of spirit. And, and you, can, you, you can see everything but him. You see his manifestations. You can't see him now because he's spirit, but, but you see him in different ways. But you also see him, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, with the eyes of your heart. It's this inner feeling and sensation, sensibility that is there. And these blind men had that. They couldn't see with their eyes, but they knew they were in the presence of the Savior. They had faith. They saw with their eyes. The reason we know this is because notice how they identify him. Have mercy on us, son of David. They, they identify him as a God of mercy, the one of mercy. They don't cry for love. Please just give me some love. Please just give me some grace. I want justice from you. No, I want mercy. I come to you. I need compassion. I don't deserve it. I don't have any reason to offer you why you should do this. I'm appealing to your compassion. 
And mercy has to do with alleviating suffering. Just the, the, the passion of your heart sees suffering and you want to help. You want to do something about it. They are appealing to that part of the Messiah. Mercy. We need mercy because mercy presupposes sin. Sin is the root cause of all suffering. If there were no sin, we wouldn't need mercy. So their blindness prevented them perhaps of seeing the miracles with these eyes, but they know what Christ can do based on the eyes of their heart, that faith there. And they can't chase after him because they can't see. Otherwise, maybe they'd run up to him and talk to him face to face. So they think to themselves, how am I going to get his attention when I don't even know where he is? I might run up to the wrong person. So they just stay where they are and they just cry. I got a voice I can't see, but I can cry. I can shout. And they cry and they shout to get the attention and it works. And Jesus comes to them when he's called by that title. And they, uh, they know who they're talking to because they know their Bibles. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And think about the passage that we read in Isaiah. See, they knew based, maybe they heard, I don't know their histories, but they knew the Bible. They knew that based on prophecy that God was going to send the son of David, the son of Abraham into his people at a, at a certain time and miracles would take place. Isaiah said it. And one of the things that if this is son of David, son of Abraham, one of the things that he would do, he had healing powers and he would help the blind to see. And so they cry out for that mercy. Isaiah 53, 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And so their, their line, their, their theology is at work here. They're hearing about this guy. He's doing all these miracles and they're lining him up with redemptive history. They're giving him the title that the Bible gives him. And it dawns on them, I need help. I'm blind. I can't see. And if this is the man that can heal the blind, then I need to get close to him. They see their moment. If I can get this guy's attention, I have hope. Because he's the one that was promised to come and heal conditions such as I have. He's a deliverer. So they cry out. And he comes. It was their moment. They knew it theologically. It wasn't just a matter of desperation. They seized the fulfillment of prophecy. God works in certain ways according to redemptive history. So when Jesus comes, he pours on the miracles so that people identify him as the son of God. And he and and. He works according to what he's trying to accomplish in the moment of redemptive history. What's he trying to accomplish today? What moment are we in in redemptive history? We are in the spreading the news of the king moment. That's what Jesus left us with when he ascended to the right hand of the father. Jesus has come and he's coming again and he wants the whole world to know that's the moment. That's our moment. That's what Jesus's efforts and power primarily is behind. And if you break it down into six sections, six sections of 
redemptive history. The sixth is Jesus is coming back. So really, we are in the upper end or the close end of the end of redemptive history as we know it. We're the last call before the king comes back. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to tell people. And that's what we should be about. We should recognize our divine moment. Jesus is coming. He's coming again. Are you ready? Are you ready for the king? It's, it's imminent. And we long for him to return. It's the mission of the church. So be of good cheer. And take heart. And let's be like those blind men and not be able to keep our mouth shut. I got a voice. Use it for the glory of God. Jesus opened their eyes. He warned them. Don't tell anybody about it. Scholars, when he sternly warns them, scholars believe that this is because Jesus knows the more popular he gets at this time. He's always weighing out his ministry options. The more popular he gets, the harder it will be for him to do his mission because he's getting more enemies. He doesn't want to be a rock star, so to speak, and be threatened. And then lastly, Jesus' authority over the devil. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So Jesus already showed us authority over demons across the lake when he cast out the demons and the, the madmen in the, in the tombs and turned them into calm, peaceful souls on a mission for Christ. Turned them into evangelists. To minister to his people. So he has authority over these. And we also know that demons can even affect negatively our physiology. And in this case, this person couldn't talk. The man didn't come to him in faith. Maybe his friends had faith. But as a demon-possessed person, he was just presented to Christ and, and Christ healed him. Whether without the faith, whether without the permission, Christ has authority to do what he wants to do to bring himself glory. So, as we close, this passage covers so much territory. It covers the things in our lives that oppress us. It covers the things in our lives that we worry about. And Matthew's message is Jesus has authority over those things. Seek him. Seek him. Have faith in him. Believe in him. No matter how deep the wounds, Jesus is king. Whether we win or lose, Jesus is king. And we exist to glorify him. And Jesus is coming back. Will you tell somebody this week that Jesus has come? He died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins and he's coming back. Share the good news with somebody. And let's surrender our hearts all to Jesus. I surrender all. Glory to God. May he bless the preaching of his word this morning. Amen.